Welcome to the final podcast in the second season of the European Wound Management Association podcast series. This season has been devoted to the prevention and management of diabetic foot ulceration. In this episode, we will be discussing the topic of patient engagement, diabetes and diabetic foot ulcers. My name is Samantha Holloway. I'm a reader and programme director in the Centre for Medical Education School of Medicine based at the College of Life and Biomedical Sciences at Cardiff University in the UK. I'm also the chair of the Education Committee and Teacher Network of the European Wound Management Association. I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Athanasios Hasoulis. Thanasi is the Programme Director of the MSc in Psychiatry Programme at Cardiff University. He's also a Senior Lecturer in Psychological Medicine teaching the subject on the medical undergraduate and intercalated degree programmes in the School of Medicine. Apart from medical education, Thanasi's research in the area of psychological medicine specifically focuses on obsessive compulsive disorder. Welcome, Thanasi. Hi, Sam. Thank you for having me. That's good. It's nice to welcome you. So if I can start the uh, discussion by thinking about a couple of concepts um, uh, with with regards to um, patient engagement and patient empowerment. We often hear these concepts referred to in the healthcare context, but could I ask you to start by defining these concepts for us? Yeah, sure. So patient engagement, I suppose, um, pretty much uh, it is what it says on the tin. So it's about getting patients engaged in their treatments, in the, the management of their conditions. I suppose also educating patients with regards to the nature of the condition and also the management thereof. So it's getting patients to, I suppose, take more of a, um, an active role in, in their uh, treatment, whereas patient empowerment perhaps goes a, a step beyond that, and it actually involves uh, having patients take some ownership of their uh, treatment, uh, the treatment plan, the management of the condition. Uh, so it's, it's sort of a, a partnership between healthcare provider and, uh, and the patient, and it's having the patients also lead on, on their treatment. It's not necessarily anymore about, I'm the doctor, I'm telling you to do this, or I'm the nurse, I'm telling you to, to do that. Mm-hmm. It's more uh, uh, empowering patients to, to feel as if they, they have control over the management of their condition as well. Okay, thank you. So, so leading on from that, can you tell us a little bit more about how the concepts of patient empowerment and patient engagement link to an individual's behaviour, specifically in a health or disease management context? Sure. So I suppose, I mean, if we're thinking uh, about the, the current situation, the, the COVID-19 pandemic and, uh, and the current context, uh, when we're looking at uh, patient engagement, in that context, we'd be considering how people are engaging, for instance, with the uh, mass vaccination program. Uh, and what we've seen, uh, for instance, with a lot of the public health campaigns is having more information available, simple information that's easy for the, the, the population to actually understand uh, and, and to, to follow. Uh, in addition to that, um, empowering patients to, I suppose, also, well, in this case, the general population, empowering them to actually feel that they have some sense of control over uh, recent events uh, by engaging in such public health campaigns, by uh, you know attending their appointments for the first priming dose and the, uh, the booster dose, they're actually gaining some control over the circumstances that have affected us all. And I suppose this kind of, uh, these principles apply to a wide range of um, 
situations and uh, medical contexts. So um, in terms of patient behavior, it, it is about, in, in a sense, having patients feel that they have not only the control, but that they're also confident to, to take a, a leading role in doing what's best for them in their own best interests as well. So you mentioned about COVID there, um, and I can see some parities to long-term health conditions such as diabetes or somebody with mm. a diabetic foot ulcer. Would you, can you elaborate a little bit more maybe on sure. so that in terms sort of, of specific population? Of course. So in terms of diabetes and uh, diabetic foot ulcer, uh, in, in relation to patient engagement, what would be key there is uh, sort of assisting patients uh, with regards to considering, you know, why it would be important to attend clinic on a regular basis, perhaps, what what the benefits of that is versus what the risk of, of not attending would be. And through that process of providing patients with the opportunity to make informed decisions, you're also indirectly empowering them to, to take control of, of the management of the condition, to take some ownership over their, their treatment. And what we've also seen in the literature, at least, is that through concordance, so a sort of a, a partnership between healthcare provider and patient, that kind of approach tends to lead to, uh, specifically with regards to diabetes, better uh, glycemic control as well. So having patients feel that they are more in control of um, you know, their own uh, condition and the treatment thereof, that does appear to have benefits generally when it comes to you know, taking their insulin and, and uh, the long-term benefits of that. Thank you. So that, that kind of leads us nicely on to the, the next uh, discussion point, which is around um, health psychology research, which often refers to the importance of self-efficacy and how this links to the concepts of empowerment and engagement. Can you talk a little bit more about self-efficacy and how that relates to an individual with diabetes? And also, if I can ask you, how might this relate to an individual with a diabetic foot ulcer as well? Yes, so self-efficacy is, it goes back to, I suppose, confidence in a sense. So self-efficacy is the, the belief that you have uh, the ability to exert control over a condition and the management of that condition. Uh, so it's the confidence that you have in yourself to be able to address those, um, those challenges, shall we say, that, are, um, that you face. Uh, and as you've said, the, the research specifically in the area of health psychology focuses quite a, quite a bit on self-efficacy because we see in, in the various uh, health models, uh, health belief model and, and various others, self-efficacy is, is key in terms of um, playing an important role in, in, in promoting patient engagement and, and empowering patients. So, um, you know, if, if you don't have a patient who believes that they can actually uh, exert control over their circumstances, that makes um, engagement and empowerment a lot more difficult. So in the, in the context of diabetes and diabetic foot ulcer, self-efficacy is crucial there because um, these are conditions where you, you know, patients need to, to take some ownership over the condition because they're going to be you know, managing the condition mostly out of the clinic. Uh, so having the confidence in themselves to be able to, you know, to, 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 to do what is necessary to keep themselves safe that that is really really important in that context. You know the the alternative is uh, non adherence to a treatment plan, and, and that can be you know catastrophic uh, when when you're dealing with patients with diabetes. Thank you. That's really interesting. Uh, so can I also ask you what are some of the main reasons for disengagement of individuals with diabetes and or diabetic foot ulcers in their care? You know what factors may hinder patient engagement in the management of their condition. 
Mm, that's that's a really interesting question as well. Um, so there are quite there are a few barriers to to um, treatment, I suppose. Uh, and again, it depends on on the the geographic region we're looking at. But what we do tend to find is that accessibility to healthcare uh, services, a physical barrier, can be quite an important one. Psychological barrier as well. So uh, we're looking at perhaps patients who may not engage, um, whether it's denial or um, perhaps not knowing too much about the condition and and the the risks of not engaging. There are certain psychological barriers that need to be considered as well. But we also have you know social barriers. So for instance in more uh, socioeconomically deprived areas, we do tend to find that um, those are areas that need to be targeted in terms of providing assistance to patients, both in terms of the psychological and the uh, physical barriers that they face as well. So it's ensuring that um, patients are able to actually access the services. And we know that at times in certain countries, the the services can be set up in in quite a complicated way. So it's helping them also maneuver themselves and navigate themselves rather within the system itself. Uh, And, and, you know, that comes with um, guidance from those healthcare professionals. But but in addition to that, I think what's really important is considering more broadly the personal reasons as to why patients may not uh, engage. So in the UK, for instance, we have a diverse population. So is it a language barrier? So sort of common sense things that we we may um, not consider. Uh, Is it a cultural, are there cultural considerations or religious considerations? So I suppose for the healthcare professional in in a diverse population, it's really important to actually understand the community you're, you're serving because there may be certain reasons why people aren't engaging that, you know, coming from a different, I suppose, uh, background you may not be aware of. Yeah, that's interesting. I was going to ask you about the cultural aspects, but you, you kind of summarised that quite <laughs> nicely. Um, so thank you. So so building on that, uh, because I think um, from what you said, there's quite a lot that clinicians could be doing to kind of facilitate in- empowerment and engagement. But what strategies and approaches can clinicians use to facilitate power- empowerment and engagement in their treatment and management? For example, what role does concordance and shared decision-making have in supporting individuals as co-producers of their health? Yeah, I think concordance is, is seen as um, increasingly becoming the gold standard when it comes to the uh, the patient healthcare professional relationship. Um, in the past, we had things such as compliance, which was pretty much um, do as I say, adherence, which was you know ensuring that a patient adheres to a, a treatment regimen. Now we're looking more at a kind of a partnership, which I think is is a lot better because that does um, facilitate that empowerment of the patient in, in their treatment. Um, but but specifically, I suppose, with regards to when you're looking at uh, the population that we're discussing, uh, enabling patients to, to feel that they have that control over their condition is, is also key. Could you remind me the first part of, of that question? Um, yeah, so I was asking you about strategies and approaches that yes. clinicians can use to facilitate, you know, uh, the empowerment and engagement. Yeah. So once you get to the point of, I suppose, concordance, where you have that partnership with the, the patient, it's important to to ensure that the patients are able to make informed decisions, um, you know, in, in partnership with the healthcare professional. So the the, the primary, I suppose, um, uh, strategy here would be to keep it simple. So there's a nice, it's 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 an acronym that's used as well, and I can't quite remember what SIMPL stand for, SIMPLE, but I think. Um, S stands for simplify the treatment regimen. 
Uh, I stands for imparting knowledge. So again, it depends on how you're um, uh, imparting knowledge. It comes down to language, culture. If you need family members present, um, you know, informants, as we call them, to enable that the patient to have that support at home as well. M might stand for measuring. I'm not quite sure, but basically you also want to ensure that you're uh, evaluating and assessing adherence as well when mm-hmm. patients are, are at home. So keeping it simple on the basis of that acronym, but also in relation to the information that we give patients, uh, what some of the research demonstrates is that the more complex the, the information patients are given, especially in um, leaflets, pamphlets, what have you, the, uh, the less likely they are to engage and the less empowered they feel. So simple messages, short messages, um, and also just, I suppose, keeping in, cons- keeping in mind what the um, average reading age is of your population. I know in the UK, mm-hmm. certain studies estimate that it's around um, 12 years of age. So you're looking at mm-hmm. early secondary school, perhaps um, reading level. So keeping the messages really, really simple. And through that approach, sort of building on that and, and enabling patients to feel that, okay, I understand my condition. I understand what I need to do to manage my condition and that subsequently leads to further empowerment down the line yeah so i mean this this one of the key things as kind of a follow-up discussion point is the ensuring that um not only in medical education but nursing education and other health professional education that they are given the skills in order to be able to do you know work with patients uh, and adopt these strategies and approaches is is really key isn't it exactly yes so you did mention a couple of things I want to come back to. Um, you know, is it correct to talk about adherence and compliance in treatment in relation to patient engagement and empowerment? You, you did kind of touch on this, but I wonder if you could elaborate a little. I think it's, um, I mean, what we see is that there is a more of a move towards concordance, so a kind of a partnership. And I think that that works particularly well with, with I'd say, most patients where they feel that, you know, that they're more likely to adhere to a a management plan um, if they feel that they have an element of control over it. Uh, whereas I suppose we're all people, if we're told we have to do something, we may, you know, not necessarily uh, mm. engage as much. So giving giving some of the uh, ownership to patients definitely uh, has proven beneficial. But there are certain circumstances where, you know, compliance and adherence still are necessary. So specifically in uh, this doesn't apply to, to diabetes, but in the context of psychiatry, where a patient may lack insight, it's a bit difficult to have a partnership in that context because mm-hmm. patients will not have insight into their condition. Whereas with diabetes, you know, with the relevant knowledge, with uh, sufficient information being uh, shared with patients, they're much more uh, in a better position to make informed decisions that are in their own best interest. So, yeah, a- adherence is important because in a sense adherence relates to a patient following a treatment plan adhering to the plan that has been agreed Uh, compliance i would say is probably a little bit more outdated yeah unless you're working in certain settings most patients don't like to be told what to do Uh, whereas adherence following a treatment regimen is still practiced concordance is important but you also can't have patients sort of doing their own thing entirely they still do need to stick to that agreed treatment plan Mm. So it, it really strikes me that then, you know, not only the sort of that first assessment appointment a, a patient might come along to uh, is key, but also any follow up assessments mm. where you're, you're looking back at these aspects of adherence and their engagement and empowerment, which exactly. can be quite difficult in a healthcare system where you might see a different healthcare professional each mm. time. 
Um, it kind of relies on consistency, doesn't it, of seeing the same person to build up rapport? Because I guess rapport yeah. is also important within this as well. Um, Very much so. As, as you say, I think those are, we talk about the, um, the, the challenges of the healthcare service that patients experience, but those working within the system also experience those challenges. So, you know, you, you have uh, high workloads as a result, as well as you said, uh, you may not see the same patient time, time after time. Patients will not be able to necessarily uh, establish that rapport with the same person. Uh, and that, that is problematic. I mean, ideally, you'd want the patient seeing the, the same person. Because, you know, if, if there is an agreement in terms of how we move forward, uh, the patient through empowerment might come back and say, look, you know, I've, I've done what you've said and I'm not quite happy, for instance, with this particular medication. Um, I'm experiencing these mm -hmm. side effects. And it needs to be a discussion, a negotiation with a, with a healthcare professional. So what do we do next? And, and I think if, if you have a lot of people involved in that process, it sort of staggers it and... and it could affect the self-efficacy of the patients as well. And they may feel that I don't really have control over the situation because I'm seeing five different people and everyone's telling me something a little bit different. And that's not the healthcare professional's fault. Everyone's starting from zero. So con yeah. continuity and consistency is important. Yeah. And also the, the patient might get quite fatigued with telling the same story over and mm. over again. You know, yeah. there's that part of it. But, you know, I guess they're trying to sort out the healthcare system is a, <laughs> is a discussion for another day. Beyond but, our pay grades. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think we have to bear that in mind in the context of um, where our listeners might be working. It's yes. worth thinking yeah. about how they how they manage those barriers. Um, there was something else you mentioned earlier that I'd like to come back to, and it related to health literacy. So this has been discussed as an influential factor that contributes to the outcomes of individuals with complex chronic diseases. So if I can start by asking you to define the concept of health literacy and maybe relate that to the impact on patients with diabetes and diabetic foot ulcers. Yeah, of course. I do have, I think I've, I've got the definition by the World Health Organization somewhere here. So I should be able to, to provide that, which is actually a really nice definition of uh, health literacy and, and pertinent, I suppose, to um, current circumstances. So World Health Organization defines health literacy as the cognitive and social skills which determine motivation and ability of individuals to gain access to, to understand and to use information uh, which promote and maintain good health. Uh, so health literacy uh, means more than just being able to read a pamphlet or make an appointment by improving people's access to the information and their capacity to use it effectively. Health literacy uh, plays a crucial role in patient empowerment. So that demonstrates how the two are, are really closely linked. And within that definition, you can mm -hmm. see that self-efficacy also features as well because it's a patient's ability to actually feel that they have an element of control over, over their treatment. Yeah. So it's more than giving somebody a leaflet. I think that's what you said earlier. Yeah. What What more is it then? You know, what would somebody need to do? I mean, and, and I guess we have to understand the pressures of appointments and clinics. And often it is easy just to say, here's a leaflet to read yeah. about. But in the short time you've got, is there something more that could be said, you know, a clinician could say that stresses the importance of the information? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously, the advice wouldn't be you know, do away with pamphlets and leaflets. Mm. Uh, so sometimes, as you say, those those are necessary, especially in a in a cl clinical setting where you know, it's an effective way of, of disseminating information. What would be important in that context would be how those pamphlets and leaflets are designed. So again, keeping the language really simple, uh, there are certain 
things to bear in mind as well, apart from, you know, using simple language. Also, uh, patients don't like a lot of numbers. This is what the research suggests, at least. Uh, and uh, it's also about how you keep patients engaged with the material. Uh, so instead of saying, for instance, you know, 77.2% of patients experience X, Y, and Z, it might be worth saying three and four, uh, mm-hmm. you know, breaking that information down. Stuff that seems very, really, really um, simplistic, but it has proven to be quite effective in terms of getting a message across by breaking it down and by also using a number of different means of communication. So depending on your patient population, if you have younger people, you could embed a QR code in your leaflet. Um, they scan the QR code, it takes them to videos, something a little bit more interactive and engaging. Um, if it's uh, Obviously, that wouldn't work perhaps as well in, in a, a clinic where you have older patients, but uh, that, that there are various strategies that can be used depending on the community that you're dealing with. And I suppose what I'd say is that the most important thing is to to know your community. Um, sometimes disseminating information in different ways via, for instance, radio stations, if possible, if that's in the budget, um, <laughs> and, and various other means as well. I think what you're doing with a podcast, I know this is for healthcare professionals, but this is an excellent way to keep you know people engaged and something similar with patients. Um, again, it would depend on the community and the population you're looking at, but being creative, as long as the, the message is simple, creative and engaging is the way to go, I think. Yeah, and we want to get the right message across, don't exactly. we? Because there's yeah. a lot of mis and disinformation out there. So it's yeah. getting the information out to people. But as that's, you say, there's lots of ways of doing that. Sorry, yes, I think that's a really important point that you've just raised, Sam. I think in terms of you know also signposting patients to accurate information because as you say they can get lost in this kind of it's really really easy now to to come across misinformation fake news false false information out there so signposting patients to reliable sources is is key as well and that would be easy to probably produce a sort of a list that they can have a look at and also discussing it with them as well to make sure they've understood it yeah um, absolutely. So thank you for that. So um, to bring the discussion to a close, could I ask you to summarise some key take-home messages for our listeners linked to patient engagement, specifically in relation to individuals with diabetes and diabetic foot ulcers? Yes, I think what's important to keep in mind with this population is that, you know, diabetes is a lifelong condition. So f- for patients managing uh, their diabetes at first there will be you know difficulty sort of adjusting to um, the treatment regimen uh, the management of the condition and there also may be fatigue uh, at various points so just i suppose touching base with patients w- as much as possible given the confines of, of healthcare systems at, at times and also ensuring you know that patients are adhering uh, to the management of the condition where patients feel that you know for instance they may disagree with the treatment approach. They do feel that they can have a negotiation or a discussion with a healthcare provider, keeping those channels of communication open. And again, it would depend, I suppose, on the population. Diabetic foot ulcers, I, I'm not an expert. I suspect you're looking at probably an older population than your teenagers who may have just been diagnosed with, um, with diabetes. So in your older population, I suppose things like polypharmacy are important to keep in mind as well. So patients may um, have a number of uh, comorbid conditions that that need to be taken into account. It could be very confusing for them. I suppose keeping their perspectives in mind as well, and it just may seem at times like there's just so much going on, they may need some additional support. So where they have the kind of social network that, that, that they can rely upon, that's excellent. Some patients may not have that. So ensuring that 
you know, when it comes to them visiting the clinic, uh, for instance, specifically when it comes to, to the foot ulcer, to, to have the wound cleaned and, and so forth. Perhaps, you know, if physical barriers exist, helping them uh, overcome those barriers, perhaps arranging transportation for them to come to the clinic or for healthcare providers to see them in their own homes. These barriers can be overcome. But yeah, I suppose it's it's knowing not only the the population, but also knowing the needs of your individual patient. That, that's absolutely key. And, and that informs other things as well. So how simple the messages need to be that you're communicating, that the patients feel that you're on their side, you're not... Um, a sort of a, a fi- an authority figure who's just there to tell them what mm. to do. So a partnership mm. is important. Absolutely. I think that's a nice message to finish on. So thank you very much for your insights, Thanasi. Finally, I would like to mention that the European Wound Management Association has published a document and a video explainer about person-centred wound care. Please have a look at these resources if you are interested to know more. You can even listen to a Yuma podcast about the topic. All can be found via the Yuma website. You have been listening to the final episode of the Yuma podcast, focusing on the management of diabetic foot ulcers in a multidisciplinary team. Don't forget that you can listen to our previous podcast episodes by visiting our website, www.ewma.org. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, don't forget to press like and share it with your colleagues. We are currently planning the next series of podcasts, so please refer to our social media platforms for more information. If you want to learn more about all of Yuma's activities, please visit our website and follow us on social media at Yuma Wound. We also hope to see you at the Yuma Virtual Conference on the 26th to 27th of October 2021, as well as our 2022 conference in France in February. Until next time, thank you for listening.